In our last sermon together, we began a study of the value of discipline. The value of discipline. Uh, we got through the first part of that, uh, the plan of discipline. We uh, are today going to finish the second part, the prerogative for discipline. But to recap from last time, to bring us all up to speed, uh, I do want to go back through uh, what we covered last week in summary before moving into the second part. Now, we have noted that the Sermon about Kingdom Values is a response by Jesus to the disciples. You'll remember that the disciples, on the way back to Capernaum, got into an argument with one another over who was greatest in God's kingdom. And it got so bad that uh, Jesus finally had enough when they got to Peter's house in Capernaum that uh, he decided to respond to their question as to who was the greatest. Now you'll recall that Peter, James, and John were proudly boasting about how they had seen the transfiguration. And their sinful boasting led the other nine to sin with envy and jealousy and bitterness. And furthermore, once they learned, once Peter, James, and John learned that the other nine were unable to cast a demon out of a young boy, they uh, began to look down upon them and treat the other nine as if they were worthless. So now Jesus turns to them, sitting in the house, and decides it's time to set things in order. And he addresses the issue over who is greatest in the kingdom of ba- in king- the king- his kingdom. Now what becomes very evident is that the disciples were not interested, at least at the outset, at king- God's kingdom values. They very much embrace the values of this world. And so Jesus sets forth five values that are as needed today as they were then. He sets a child before them. And he takes this child, a toddler, most likely Peter's own child. He puts Peter there on his lap before the disciples and said, Be like this child. And so he goes and uh, uses this child throughout this entire sermon as an illustration of these values. And so the first value he sets forth before them is the value of humility. And he says, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Forget greatness in the kingdom, you're not getting in the door. And so they need to humble themselves, repent of their sins, and believe the gospel. Now they had done that. But if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to continue to be humble. And humility displays itself in submission to God and service to others. Certainly they weren't serving others with their attitudes, nor were they submitting to God. Remember, Peter, James, and John were proudly boasting, not humbling themselves in the least. There was no submission to God, simply a desire to lord it over the others. Next, Jesus went on to give them the second kingdom value, the the value of guarding against sin. They had all sinned, but the three were worse than the other nine. The three not only sinned about in boasting, but they also were guilty of enticing or tempting the other nine into sin. Because of their boasting and because of their despising of the other nine's inability to cast out a demon from a child, they caused the others to sin. And Jesus said, those who cause others to sin, would, it would be better for them to have the, a millstone placed around the neck and to be cast into the sea and drown. That's a pretty severe punishment. 
But that punishment pales in comparison to what he is reserving for those so-called believers who, who persistently tempt others into sin. He promises them punishment forever in the lake of fire. A very sobering reality. Now the fact of the matter is, we're all sinners. We all sin. We are sinning. We have sinned. And we will sin. But we need to guard against it. And that brings us to the fourth value. Or the third value, rather. The third value is to pursue the strain, the lost. Now again, in the context, the lost sheep is not a sinner that needs to be saved. It's not an unregenerate individual. Here, the lost sheep is a believer who has wandered away. Every time you're in the Gospel of Records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus gives a parable about the sheep, sheep refer to believers, not the lost, not the unsaved, in that, in, in that sense of the word lost. So the lost here are not unsaved people. They are saved brothers and sisters in Christ who have wandered into sin. And unfortunately, when somebody wanders into sin, we have one or two reactions. We either ignore their sin or we ignore them. We can't do either. We have to be like our Heavenly Father. When the Father has a child that wanders, He goes and pursues that child and brings them back. So must we do the same. We cannot make excuse for not pursuing our brothers and sisters in Christ who have wandered into sin. Now we ask ourselves, how do we do that? How do we undertake this rescue ministry? One simple word, discipline. And that's the uh, fourth value that Jesus sets before us that needs to be embraced, the value of discipline. And he shows us here in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 that it is valuable because it is the only method for rescuing a straying believer. And so he sets forth for us the plan and the prerogative for discipline. The plan and the prerogative. Now, we're going to recap the plan here. We're not going to go through it in depth like we did last week, but we're going to recap it because I believe it's important for repetition is important here so that we all understand what the plan is so that we're all prepared to initiate the plan. So it's good to rehearse so that we might remember what the plan is. Let's read verses 15 to 17 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, great, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's the plan for discipling strain believers. And notice he begins with, if your brother sins. Who's your brother? The word Adelphos means someone who's part of the same fellowship. He's a fellow believer or a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And the fact that it says if, that indicates there's a possibility. On the occasion that your brother or sister sins, here's the plan for rescuing them. Here's the plan. We also define sin. It's good to define sin. We need to know what sin is. If we're going to confront and correct somebody who's in sin, we need to define what sin is. Now, by definition, the word sin, harmatano, means to miss the mark. We're to fall short of a target. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and what? Fell short. Missed the mark of God's glory. 
What is God's glory? God's glory is His holiness. And did He not, in Leviticus 11.44, and again in 1 Peter 1.16, command us to be holy as He is holy? So if we fail to be holy, we have missed the mark of God's glory. And He's given us His law to teach us how to be holy in our daily lives. Now 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. So if you or I violate God's law, we have sinned. James 4, 17 says, If you know to do right and do not do it, it is sin. So if you or I, if we don't do what is right, we have sinned. Romans 14, 23, Whatever is not from faith is sin. My friends, if we violate our biblical beliefs, we have sinned. 1 John 5, 17, All immorality is sin. That's pretty straightforward. If you're out there committing immorality, you have sinned. But I want to also let you know that sin not only involves your actions, it involves your thoughts. It's not only evil actions that are referred to as sins, but evil thoughts. As Proverbs 4, 24, 9 says, The desi- devising of folly is sin. Now friends, if we have violated God's law, failed to do what is right, violated our biblical beliefs, committed immorality, or even thought something evil... We are guilty of sin. That's a sobering reality, isn't it? The sobering reality is we begin to realize, man, we're all sinners. Maybe I haven't done a sin, but I know I've thought a sin. We're all guilty. But you know, I praise God that He does not allow genuine believers to continue in sin. No, what's He do? He pursues us. He rescues us so that we don't continue in that sin. And He expects you and I to do the same for one another with our spiritual siblings. So He lays out a four-step plan. Now the hope is He never has to get past step one. But in the event that we don't, that we don't accomplish with step one, then we have to go to two, maybe three, and I pray not four, but even step four. So step one, confront and correct the sinning believer. Confront and correct the sinning believer. Jesus says, go and show him his faults. That's a, there, there are two commands there. You can't get around that. If you don't go and show, you're in sin. If you ignore their sin or ignore them, you're in sin. Go means pursue. Pursue that wandering sheep. Why? Because sheep that are lost, sheep that are wandering, don't find their way back to the sheepfold on their own. You've got to go out and bring them back. Don't be deceived and don't think, well, this is just a job for the elders of the church. This is the command to all of us. Go and show. The word show there, aleko, means confront and correct. Confront and correct. Listen, that, that confront, that, that's the hard part. Okay. Listen, we never get to the correction because we've never done the confronting. And by the way, the goal of confrontation is not condemnation. You're not confronting them to condemn them. You're confronting them to correct them, to get them back where they need to be, to get them back in the sheepfold. Now, I'll admit, that's unpleasant in our postmodern Western culture. We don't want to confront and correct anybody. Yet God says in His law, you will not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, but rather you will surely reprove your neighbor. In other words, God says, if you do not correct your brother or sister who is in sin, then you are literally guilty of hating them. Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love... I reprove, I correct, and discipline. So failure to correct or discipline, failure to confront them, 
is the equivalent of hating them. If we love them, then pursue them, warn them, rescue them from spiritual danger. Notice as well, Jesus says when we confront our brother or sister, when we correct them, it's to be done in private. It doesn't, you don't have to take a column out in the church letter. You don't have to take it, put it out in the bulletin. Hey, we're going to be correcting so-and-so. It's nobody's business. Well, I'll, I'll ask for prayer. I'll put it in the prayer. Listen, some things don't belong in the prayer bulletin. Okay? Listen, if, you got, if you're that convinced that somebody has sinned and you're going to go confront them and correct them, praise God. But let me tell you, just put it down as an unspoken. Keep it in private. You don't have to tell all you know. Imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Okay? Listen, when we deal with the issue in private, it will stave off gossip. It will prevent the possibility of destroying someone's reputation. And I love what Paul says in, or asks in 1 Corinthians 4.21. Should I come to you with a rod or should I come to you with love and a spirit of gentleness? How would you want to be confronted and corrected? You certainly wouldn't want it to be done in front of everybody, nor do they. So put yourself in their shoes. And certainly, you would not want somebody to come and beat you with a rod. You would want to come, them to come to you with love and gentleness. And so let's consider how we confront one another. We need to do it in gentleness. We need to be even-tempered. We need to be mild in our words. Let's remember what James says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. You can say the right words, but you can do it in the wrong way, and you can derail the entire process of correction. Now, what, what are we trying to do by confronting and correcting them? We're trying to bring them to repentance and restoration. I love the fact here that there's no length of time set upon step one. Listen, every situation is going to be different. We need to go with a gentle, patient series of confrontations. Probably going to take more than one or two times. Maybe three or four. Could be more than that. What we need to do in each situation is prayerfully consider how long and when it's time to move on. Now, look, Jesus says next, if he listens, you've won your brother. If he hears and heeds, akuo, if he hears and heeds what you've said, in other words, he acknowledges his sin and he responds in repentance, listen, you have won, you have cardano, you have rescued them from spiritual ruin. You've snatched them out of the fire. But that verb, one, also means you've gained back something valuable. Your brother and sister in Christ is valuable to your Father in heaven. And so when you rescue them, you have brought something back into the sheepfold that is valuable to your Father. And as such ought to be valuable to you. Do you love, do you value your brothers and sisters in enough to confront and correct them? Now, I pray we never get through step one. I pray that, you know, if we're in that situation, we get to step one, there's immediate repentance. What happens if there's not? And sadly, there are times when it's not. Well, then we get, need to go to step two. Step two is to confirm the facts against the sinning believer. Confirm the facts against the sinning believer. Jesus says, if he does not listen to you, if the private confrontation and correction didn't work, now take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is right out of God's law. Deuteronomy 7, 6, Deuteronomy 19, 15 are very clear that a single witness is not sufficient to find somebody guilty of sin. It had to be established by two or three eyewitnesses. Why? 
Because as Deuteronomy, 9, as Deuteronomy 19 makes very clear in verse 16, it is possible that one witness is simply a malicious witness. It's possible that somebody's got an axe to grind and will trump up an accusation against this individual. And so therefore, there must be two or three to establish the veracity of the offense. Now, the fact that it's possible that a malicious witness could rise up against a person and accuse them of wrongdoing means we ought to be aware of doing the same. Don't you be guilty of making an accusation against your brother without the facts. Unless you have witnessed the sin or offense, I've got a word for you. Mind your business. Okay? Pastor, I heard so-and-so. Put the brakes on. You what? I heard. Mm. Or, how about this one? Pastor, I think so-and-so. Mm. Put the brake on. Okay? Listen. You think? You heard? If you heard, you're participating in gossip. And if you think, you most likely don't have any fact behind it. And now, guess what? Now you're guilty of bearing false witness. And Jesus, God the Father says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, there are six things, the H.A. 7, are an abomination. Two of those seven things that he considers abominable are bearing false witness or spreading gossip. Unless you know it to be a fact, you've seen it, you've eyewitnessed it with your own eyes, mind your business. If somebody comes to you and starts with that line, oh, I, I think so, so, then good. Guess what? Let's have a word of prayer, and I'm going to pray to God motivates you to go and confront them. I don't want to hear anything else about it. Listen, stop the gossip right, in the, right, right on the track. Turn that train right around. You don't want to be part and party to that. In fact, you could confront that other brother or sister and say, listen, you're being guilty of gossip. You need to repent of your gossip. And go and deal with that brother on your own. Now, the fact that we're looking for eyewitnesses implies that while we're trying to keep this as private as possible, because the individual refuses to repent, now there's an occasion where we have to find others who are eyewitnesses of this sin. Paul said to 2 Corinthians, 12, 2 Corinthians 13, rather, every fact must be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why? Because they can confirm they've seen the sin. Okay? They know the sin has occurred. Again, it's possible that there was no sin, but that the person doing the accusation is wrong. They can confirm that the sinning believer is aware of their sin. And they can also confirm whether or not there's been repentance. But what do we do if we don't have eyewitnesses? You know, obviously, I don't want to go around and start asking everybody, hey, did you see so-and-so do such-and-such? Okay. You know, so again, you're not, you're not out there, you know, passing around gossip in order to find these witnesses, okay? These witnesses should be obvious and, and uh, that, that they've been eyewitnesses to this sin. What happens if there aren't any other eyewitnesses? You know there's a sin, you've gone them, you've confronted them, and they're just refusing to repent. Then you need to go get the elders of the church. You know, and I, I would, you know, it's a spiritually mature one. And the reason I would say the elder, because, you know, listen, the elders of the church should be spiritually mature ones. And if they're not, well, that's a problem that needs to be dealt with. Okay? 
But we go to the, the elders of the church, the spiritually mature ones of the church, and we ask them to come along with us so that they can confirm that sin has occurred, that they can confirm that there, isn't, there is or isn't repentance, and they can also help mediate and resolve the issue. And as I said last time, and I'll say it again, when an elder is asked to serve in the, that capacity, discretion and privacy must be maintained. If an elder cannot or will not keep the issue private, if they take that issue and spread it to others, they're guilty of sin, and they then need to be disciplined. Okay? What happens if this works? Hey, you're done. Great. Let's let's start restoring them back to service. But in the event that they don't, we've got to go to step three, and that is to communicate with the church. If he refuses to listen to them, the witnesses... That is, he doesn't heed or hear. He, doesn't, he ignores the admonition. He doesn't accept their correction. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Now, the word church, ecclesia here, refers to the congregation of the faithful. What is the church? Church is not a building. I've said that before. I'll say it till my dying day. The church is not a building. Okay? The church is a people. And predominantly, the word ecclesia that's used here means the congregation of the faithful. Okay. In other words, it's not just every Tom, Dick, and Harry that may wander in off the street. Listen, you know, we're not talking to those people. We're not telling those people about family business. We're talking about those who have identified themselves as being committed and faithful to the church. Okay. So we're only sitting down with those who are faithful to the church, committed to the church. We're not dealing with this church discipline issue in a regular morning worship service. Okay, We're not dealing with it at a prayer meeting time. We're dealing with it in a separate, set-apart meeting of the faithful. Now, are there anybody else that ought to be included in this meeting? Possibly yes. Uh, if someone is being harmed or potentially harmed by the sin of the individual, they need to be notified. Okay, listen, there, there's nothing more grievous than when I see churches or hear about churches uh, who are covering up cases of abuse, endangerment, and all kinds of immorality. No, you don't do that. You need to go and find those people who are being harmed, uh, and they need to be notified. Uh, second, uh, if there's an individual or group that could be instrumental in bringing the sinning believer to repentance, they should be included. Listen, there's going to be times, and I pray it doesn't happen, but there could very well be times, or have been times in other churches, where there are situations where we are just ill-equipped to properly deal with them. That's when you need outside help. And then thirdly, it may even be a case, and I pray this isn't ever the case, but uh, where you have to uh, notify the proper authorities. Okay? Now, again, I would pray that we don't have to ever have to deal with a sin of that magnitude. But if that's the case, then that's what will be done. And this will be done with discretion and legal guidance. Again, if we're going to take it to the church, then we've got to use the utmost care, the utmost discretion. All right. Now, if they repent, great. But what if they don't? Then we go to step four. And step four is we have to censure the sinning believer. We have to censure them. If he refuses to listen. And that word refuse means he's ignoring. The, it's parakuo. He's ignoring the church's pleading. Jesus says, let him to be as a Gentile tax collector. In other words, you need to treat him as a pagan, as an unregenerate outcast. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to 13. He says, do not associate with them. In other words, do not engage in spiritual endeavors with that one who is in sin. 
What does that mean? Does that mean I don't have anything to do with them anymore? No. But what it means is we do not engage with them in spiritual matters. In other words, they're forbidden from partaking in worship, in fellowship, in prayer time, and in communion. And again, it's not to embarrass them, but it's to get them to a place where they'll finally wake up and repent so that they can be restored. In fact, he goes further in quoting Deuteronomy 13.5. He says, you need to remove that wicked man from amongst yourselves. It may come to the point where we have to excommunicate them. Not to embarrass them, but as a final attempt to rescue them. You know, some people just simply can't take a good old-fashioned, hey, bud, listen, I'm concerned with what you're doing. Some people, some sheep are so hard-headed, okay, that they have to be cracked over the head to wake them up. Again, I pray that we don't ever have to engage in that here, that we ever have to get to that fourth stage. But it's there if necessary. Now, immediately you're hearing this, and I know that some of you, wait a minute, Pastor, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable with this. Well, let me give you the prerogative, and I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at the prerogative for disciplining strained believers. What right do you and I have to do? On whose authority do we have to go out and correct, or well, first confront and correct a sinning brother or sister in Christ? What authority do we have to get other witnesses? What authority do we have to tell it to the church? What authority do we even have to censure them? Let's look at verses 18 and 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The prerogative for disciplining strained believers. Notice what Jesus begins saying. Truly, I say to you. Jesus immediately establishes his authority and underscores the importance of what he is about to say. In verse 18, he gives us a promise. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, the Roman Catholic Church loves to twist this verse. They will use this verse to teach that the church has been given the authority uh, to absolve sins. No. This verse has nothing to do with that. Okay? Jesus restates the promise of verse 18 and verse 19 saying, If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. The charismatics take this verse and they twist it to teach that God will grant you anything you ask. That's wrong. Okay? The church cannot absolve sin. No priest on earth can absolve you of sin. And this verse does not tell you, verse 19 does not tell you that anything you pray for, God's going to give you. Now, if those two views are wrong, what is Jesus actually saying then? Context, context, context. I remember the words of Bernice Willis. A context without a text is a con. Okay, think about that. If you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. And so many believers have been conned into believing wrong things about this verse. The context is the value of discipline. He's talking about disciplining. So obviously verse 18 and 19 have to do with disciplining nothing else. Don't apply them to anything else. Stay in the lane. Okay? Let's look at the words here. Whatever you bind will be bound. 
Now the terms bind and bound translate the same Greek term, deo. It reflects the rabbinic legalese term used for prohibiting something. They would use this term to prohibit things such as food. Therefore, the word bind and bound would be better rendered as prohibit or prohibited. Therefore, to bind on earth refers to decisions made by the church to prohibit or expel an unrepentant believer from the church. And so whereas bind or bound refer to prohibiting something, then loose and loosed, luo, would mean to what? Allow something. So if you prohibit something, you can allow something. And this prohibiting or allowing of something refers to the divine authority that the church has been given to decide innocence or guilt in cases of discipline or repentance and re- or rejection based on God's law. Now notice the word bound and the word loosed. Okay? Bound and loosed. Okay? Those two words, bound in heaven, loosed in heaven, can be translated as this way. They're perfect tense verbs, so therefore they should be rendered this way. Will have been prohibited and will have been allowed. Now, let's take verse 18 and rewrite it. Let's retranslate it. Whatever is prohibited on earth will have already been prohibited in heaven. And whatever is allowed on earth will have already been allowed by heaven. Okay? Everybody tracking together on this verse. Let's take a moment and think about it. Whatever is prohibited on earth has already been prohibited in heaven. Whatever is allowed on earth has already been allowed in heaven. Now let's remember that in the book of Matthew, heaven is a substitute for the name of God. Jewish people don't invoke the name of God so that they're not guilty of cursing it. So often they would replace it with heaven. So in other words, heaven or God has already made the decision when a congregation decides to expel the unrepentant or restore the repentant based on God's law. In other words, God isn't following our decision to expel the unrepentant. He's not following our decision to restore the repentant. Where we, the church, is following what God's already done in heaven. Listen, by the time we get to the point of censuring, God's already censured them. You're simply doing what God has already done. And if they've repented and you're giving them forgiveness, guess what? God's already forgiven them. We read that, though, in English, and without digging into the original language, we come away with this idea, well, obviously, at first, do we even know what the verse means? But that's how we get these crazy ideas that somehow, you know, we can absolve sins and whatever we decide to do, heaven's got to do it, God's got to do it as well. No, it's a perfect tense, meaning it has already been done in heaven. It's already been done in heaven. This truth is reflected in John 20 and verse 23. John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sin has been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now notice there the verb forgiven and retained are perfect tense. Therefore, we could render it this way. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have already been forgiven. And if you retain or forgive the sins of any, they've already been what? Forgiven. 
Our decision to forgive or our decision to uh, withhold forgiveness has already been decided by God. Okay? John Nolan says the one whom the church declares to be out of step with God is indeed already out of step with God. You're only verbalizing what God has already done. Now I know some of you are still sitting there, Pastor, this is a grave responsibility. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, man, I'm reluctant. Well, first of all, I pray that you don't ever have to get to that fourth stage. You know, honestly, if the Holy Spirit's there, you know, I would say that 90% of the time, step one is going to be sufficient. Okay? It's the rarity that you're going to get to step four. And I would go so far as to say, if you've gotten to step four, you're probably not dealing with a believer anyway. Okay? Because again, if the Holy Spirit's there, there's going to be what? Repentance. There's going to be an acknowledgement of sin. Okay. But I understand that this is not easy. Maybe you're reluctant. Maybe you say, well, Pastor, I'm just afraid I'm going to make the wrong decision. How do I know we're going to make the right decision? And then, then maybe some of you are sitting there and saying, well, Pastor, listen, it's not my place to pass judgment. Go back and read Matthew 7. Okay? Uh, it is, so long as you pass judgment based on God's law, not based on your feelings or emotions. Okay? But you say, listen... I don't have the authority to judge. Who, who gives me the prerogative to do this? To go and, and even censure someone. God has commanded us to go and show. He has outlined the plan. Confront them, correct them. Get eyewitnesses. Take it to the church. Then, and we pray never has to get to that point, but then if necessary, censure them. But now he's given us the prerogative. You see, when discipline is done God's way, you and I do not need to fear the consequence. Because God's already made the decision. That's the point of what he's just said. Listen, if you are going through and disciplining somebody to the point where you have to censure them, listen, heaven has already censured them. You're only doing what God has already done. If you followed the plan, if you did it God's way, then whatever decision you arrive at, know this, heaven's already got there before you did. Okay? Jesus goes on and says, If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Here's another twisted scripture. Okay? I can't tell you how many people have used this verse to promote the idea that if two or more Christians agree on something and pray for it, God is obliged to give it to them. That is not what that verse says. Stop using this verse to treat God like you're a genie in a bottle. This interpretation, this false interpretation of this verse results from creating a doctrine without consulting the original Language or the original text? Okay. First of all, the verse takes place in the context of discipline. Okay. So obviously it has something to do with church discipline. And secondly, what does the word actually say? Here's the problem. If two of you agree on earth about anything, there's the problem. The word anything. In the Greek text, the English word anything is actually rendering two Greek terms. Pas which can be any, all, or every, and pragma. Now there's the word that's key to the understanding of this text. Pragma. 
Pragma is a situation or event in which a legal remedy is sought. So therefore, it's not anything, is it? It's any case where a legal remedy is sought. A little different, isn't it? This isn't open season on rub the lamp and get whatever you want. This is a case of legal issues. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.1, Paul asks, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law? before the unrighteous and not the saints. The word case, if anybody has a legal issue, guess what the word is there? Pragma. The word the translators don't translate back in Matthew 18. If anyone has a legal issue against his neighbor, does he go to the law of the unrighteous or the saints? Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with legal disputes between believers. How to resolve legal disputes. Therefore, pospragma in Matthew 18 would be better rendered as any case of discipline or any discipline case. Now again, remember here in Matthew 18, 18 to 20, Jesus providing us with the prerogative, giving us the divine authority to decide innocence or guilt, repentance or restoration or rejection in cases of church discipline. I would render the verse this way. I would take the word anything and replace it. If two or you agree on earth about any discipline case that they may ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So now we've got the verse back where it belongs. It's only prayers that we're talking about here are prayers about cases of discipline. Now who are the two? The two go back to the what? The two witnesses in verse 16. And they agree. They symphonio. That's where we get our word symphony from. They're in harmony about something. And they may ask, refers to prayer concerning issues of discipline. So here it is. When the two or three witnesses have prayed, and they're in harmony about whether the believer has repented or refused to repent, they can be confident that the decision they arrive at will align with their Heavenly Father. That's the prerogative that God's giving us here. Okay? If the two or three witnesses are in agreement and they've prayed about it, you can have confidence knowing that the Father is behind this. Now listen, not only do we have agreement with our Heavenly Father, but we also have assurance from Jesus. He goes on and says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst. Here's another twisted scripture. How often do we use this verse to justify a small church gathering? Others have used it to even as an excuse not to assemble as, the, as, as a church. I've had people use this verse to rationalize. Hey, as long as I'm with another brother or sister in Christ, we're the church and we've met the requirements to assemble and we're not guilty of, not, of forsaking the assembling together. Friend, neither of those positions are tenable or biblical. Okay? This verse has nothing to do with the size of a church gathering, nor does it have anything to do to get you off the hook of not being where you need to be. Okay? The context of this verse is significant. The context is what? The divine authority to decide innocence and guilt. The divine authority to accept repentance or rejection in cases of discipline. If two or three are gathered together, who's the two or three? Again, the witnesses. Now watch this, folks. When a sinning believer rejected the urging of the witnesses to repent, what, was the, what were the witnesses to do? Take it to the church. Take it to the congregation of the faithful. Now, again, he says, where two or three have gathered together, 
That verb gather together translates the Greek term synago, meaning to gather or to assemble. Now, it's interesting because synago is the verbal form of sunagoge. Sunagoge or synagogue. What is a synagogue? It's the place where a congregation assembles. Now, follow this, okay? Where two or three have gathered together should be rendered this way. Where two or three witnesses assemble or meet together with the congregation. Wow. So we're where the two or three witnesses gather together with the congregation in my name. I'm there in their midst. In my name. What does that mean? It means to pray. It means to pray according to Jesus' will and character. So when the witnesses meet with the congregation over a case of discipline, what is the first thing they're to do? Pray. Pray for Jesus' will. Pray according to Jesus' character. And when they do that, guess what? He'll be in their midst. In their midst, that phrase Jesus uses uh, there, he adopts from the Numbers 35, 34 and Joel 2, 27. In Numbers 35, 34, God says, I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of his sons of Israel. In Joel 2, 17, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. Now, in those two verses, Yahweh, God, was declaring His presence in their midst. He's, in, he's present with them. So when Jesus says, I am there in their midst, first and foremost, He's equating Himself with Yahweh. And secondly, He's saying, listen, I'm going to be with you. The promise of His presence assures us that the congregation has made the proper decision. Okay? The two or three witnesses pray with the congregation and as they pray together over what to do, they can be assured not only is God behind it, but Jesus is with them as they're making the decision. He's in their midst. His presence is with them. So the prerogative for discipline is the Father's approval and Jesus' assurance. So friends, when we do discipline biblically, when we do it God's way, and we have the prerogative to do it, guess what it's going to do? It's going to prevent us from being bullies. It's going to prevent us from being browbeaters. And it's going to prevent us from being busybodies. Discipline is valuable because it results in repentance and restoration. Now, repentance enables believers to be restored to fellowship. Now, unfortunately, here in the text, Jesus does not tell us how restoration occurs. But the ministry of restoration is a much-needed, but sadly, much-neglected ministry in the church. So I want to just briefly, and it will be brief, give you a three-step restoration plan as outlined by Paul in Galatians 6. So you're going to turn over to Galatians 6, that would be great. This is a three-step program. Step one, pick up. Step three, hold up. Step four, build up. Okay, all you got to do is remember three words. Pick, hold, and build. And then add the word up to each of them. I'm going to start in Galatians 6 and verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, who's he talking to? The church. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Notice the word trespass. Paraptoma. Anyone stumbles into sin. And the word caught, prolambano. They've been caught off guard. In other words, sin crept in and caused the believer to stumble or fall into sin. 
You who are spiritual. In other words, you spiritually mature people, restore them. The word restore, katartizo, set a bone, mend a neck. In other words, we restore them back to their former condition. How do we do that? In a spirit of gentleness, with humility. Okay. Remember, you could have been in the same position. So that's step one. So again, they've, they've sinned, they've, they, we pursued them, we confronted, we corrected them, they repented. Here's what we got to do. We pick them up. Okay. Step two, verse two. Bear one another's burdens and therefore, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We've got to hold them up as they struggle to overcome sin. That word burden, baros, it's an area of weakness where temptation can strike. Listen, restoration isn't always going to be easy. Why? Because the area of spiritual weakness is still there. Freedom from sin is not freedom from temptation. Great, they repented of their sin, but the capacity to fall back into it is still there. Therefore, you who are restoring them, you need to hold them up. You need to be there to keep them from falling back into it. And now I'll jump down to verse 6. Here's the third step. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. We need to build them up. We need to build them up. We pick them up. We hold them up. And now we got to build them up. we got to restore them to fellowship. You are going to use God's word to teach them and restore them back to where they need to be. And in doing so, that restored believer can now begin to share or fellowship in the blessings of God with other spiritually mature believers. But friends, it's your responsibility to restore the wandering. You know, oh well, they repented. Great, I'm happy they repented. Praise God, they repented. But now we got to get them back to where they were. You know, unfortunately, we have this mindset that you know somebody sinned, they confessed and repented of their sin, but now we've got to punish them. There's no evidence of that in the scripture. Once they've repented, slate's wiped clean. Now it's time to restore them. Now the process may be may take a moment, okay, depending on their sin and so forth. But we're not supposed to be writing out, okay, well, here's here's the punishments that's coming your way. No, here's the restoration. Here we're going to get you back to where you need to be, just like King David. Okay. We need to help those struggling with sin deal with the temptations. And that doesn't mean just reading a verse to them. It means taking a call from them when they're struggling, praying with them, developing a plan to help overcome the temptation, and helping them to execute it. By the way, when we do that, we're we're following, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Jesus says in John 13, 34, Love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The law of Christ means this. I've got to love others the same way Christ would love them. So the ministry of restoration must be undertaken. Must be taken, undertaken by each and every one of us. But let me leave you with three warnings. Number one, look at verse three. If you think you're something when you are nothing, you deceive yourself. Okay. Listen, if you're restoring your brother or sister in Christ, don't look at them and compare yourself to them and say, man, look how good I am. That didn't happen to me. <laughs> Take heed lest you fall. Okay? That's warning number one. Don't fall in to false comparisons. Number two, don't fall into spiritual pride. Look at verse four. Each one must examine his own work. And then he'll have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Listen, any victory you've got in your life over sin came by God's grace. 
not because you were someone special. And verse 5, each one will bear his own load. Again, believer, here's a third warning. Do not forsake your present ministry. Ministry of restoration is important. Don't, don't mistake me here. But if, you, if you're involved in the ministry of restoration, that doesn't mean you forget every, all your other ministries. Well, I'm busy restoring this brother or sister in Christ. That's great. But if you've got some other ministry, you still have to be doing that ministry as well. You know, it would be like the pastor coming and say, listen, I can't preach next Sunday because I'm busy restoring a brother this week. Listen, restore that brother. But preach your sermon next Sunday anyway. Again, we cannot neglect our other ministries or obligations because we have another ministry to restore. So discipline is valuable. Why? Because it is the means of rescuing strained believers. Repentance, or excuse me, rescuing begins with repentance, and repentance leads to restoration. And so I want to leave you with this challenge. I challenge you, pursue those who are straying, confront and correct them with love and gentleness, and when they repent, work for their restoration. Father God, we come into your presence through Jesus. We pray according to his character. We pray according to his will. And we come asking, Father, that you would forgive us if we've never pursued a lost one, if we've never gone out and confronted and corrected our brother and sister. And Lord, if, if we have ignored them or ignored their sin, forgive us. Father, if we've confronted and tried to correct them out of anger, forgive us. If we've ever confronted or corrected them, Father, without gentleness and love, forgive us. Father, help us to go and do this as you would, as a loving father. Not seeking to destroy his child, but seeking to restore his child. So, Father, I pray that you'd give us grace and you'd give us wisdom in doing this very important task. Church today is filled with people around the world who have been cast aside and cast off because nobody has pursued them. Nobody's confronted or corrected them. And even more grievous, there are many who have repented but have been left by the wayside because they've never been restored. Help us to undertake that very important ministry. And when we do, we ask that you would get all the glory and all the honor. Amen.